Hey there, beverage enthusiasts. My name is Javier Morquecho, and I'm the founder of SpecialtySodas.com, one of the largest craft soda and specialty beverage retailers in the U.S. As well as this Specialty Sodas podcast, where ambitious entrepreneurs and leaders in the beverage industry come to share their story. My mission is to build a community within the beverage industry so we can all meet and learn from one another and connect for meaningful relationships. I'm joined today by Mark Rampola, the co-founder and managing partner of Powerplant Ventures, which invests in emerging growth companies that intend to remake our global food system to deliver better nutrition in more sustainable and ethical ways. He is also the founder and CEO of Zico Coconut Water from 2004 to 2013, when it was purchased by the Coca-Cola Company. In less than 10 years, Mark grew his beverage startup from idea to one of the global leaders of an 8 billion new beverage category, coconut water. Mark is also the author of High Hanging Fruit, Build Something Great by Going Where No One Else Will, published by Portfolio Penguin. The book is for people who want to succeed because of, not in spite of their values. It's for people who believe it's their duty to reach higher and build a business driven by passion, purpose, and integrity. High Hanging Fruit is a call to arms for a new generation of entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the old model and do good by doing business. Hi, Mark. Uh, thank you. I have you. Uh, so in today's episode, uh, Mark will share his entrepreneurial journey and together we'll learn the key insights and wisdom he gained as he discovered what success truly means. So let's start our story with where you are today as an investor. So after selling Zico to the Coca-Cola company uh, three years ago, you personally invested in up to 15 companies. So after your entrepreneurial run, what attracted you to invest in the dreams of other uh, entrepreneurs as a personal investor? Yeah, that's a good question, Javier. I mean, you know, it kind of it, it, it came about randomly and it was not my initial intention in a way. What happened was, I think in part because of the network I developed and the, the friends I had in the industry, I did have sort of a bird's eye view of what was happening, at least in certain categories and segments. And so I started seeing some really interesting opportunities, entrepreneurs that I knew and, and respected, investors that I respected, employees that had joined these companies, and I would see the traction that they had in, in the marketplace and, and just had an opportunity to invest and fortunately the resources to be able to do it. So it originally just started out opportunistic. You know, I saw some things that were interesting. Uh, Suja uh, uh, Beverages is, is one of the companies, Runa, uh, a fat, young, fast-growing company, and a few others uh, uh, in food, beverage, all of which had some sort of overall social or, or health and wellness or social impact. And I realized that I loved it. <laughs> I realized that, you know, I thought maybe it would be a placeholder until I decided to start my next business, but I realized I loved identifying and working with and finding these brilliant uh, entrepreneurs that had a passionate commitment to change the, the marketplace in some way. And I also frankly realized I wasn't sure I wanted to compete with a lot of them. No. <laughs> you know, I realized they were incredible entrepreneurs and really capable and, 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 and doing a great job. And so the more I started uh, meeting some of them and investing with some of them, I realized, wow, you know, I love this. It's something I think I could do. I think I can make a make an impact and, and, and add some value. 
And so I began to formalize that and more recently uh, formed uh, form, form this uh, Power Plant Ventures. Yeah, so uh, you co-founded Power Plant Ventures, uh, which invests in businesses in categories that are on trend or totally breakout. And unlike other investment firms, uh, you want to know that the entrepreneurs have looked beyond their profits and actually looked deeply within themselves. You ask questions like, why do you create this business above all others? How do you know you want to spend your life doing it? How's it going to make your life better? How's it going to make the world better? So why is it important to ask these questions to entrepreneurs? What are you looking to hear from their story? Yeah, that's a great question. So look, for me, you know, I, I am, I, I'm certainly, um, you know, I'm a capitalist. I, I, I'm interested in making money. I have investors that expect us to generate a return, yeah. but also I'm also a human and a person and a father and a community member. And so I want to be a part of making a positive impact on this world and believe, well, all of us in this industry have an obligation to deliver products, food, beverage products that are healthy, that, that deliver on our promise. And part of that is about um, uh, making a positive impact. I believe that the entrepreneurs that are most likely to do that are the ones that are combine a, a you know, ambitious business mindset with a with an idea about positive impact on the world and really know themselves, understand deeply why they're committed to making this change in the world, why the world needs to have this change. And that's the sort of passion and commitment it takes to succeed in this world. And the irony is, I believe that the entrepreneurs that have that are the ones that are gonna break through. And I've seen it again and again, that the entrepreneurs that are only about the bottom line, only about making a buck, only about trying to build this billion dollar brand, don't. It's the ones that are so committed and passionate about their mission that do in fact succeed. So those are the ones I wanna back, those are the visionaries I wanna, I wanna work with. So you mentioned uh, Runa Energy as well as uh, Suja. Uh, are there any other companies that? Yeah, I'll give you an example of one. Uh, it's called Thrive Market. Um, it's an online retailer based here in LA. So they're basically combining a uh, Amazon Whole Foods and Amazon, sorry, sorry, uh, a Costco Whole Foods and Amazon model. So it's a subscription model. You pay, I think it's $65 a year to become a member. You get to buy a curated list of products that you might find in a natural food retailer like Sprouts or Whole Foods, but at 25 to 50% below prices, delivered to your home like Amazon. And for every membership they sell, they give one away to a low-income family, a military family, or an educator. And these guys that started this are absolutely committed to democratizing access to, to natural, healthy food. So their premise was, you know, look, Whole Foods is an incredible company. Sprouts is a great company. The whole natural food industry has done a wonderful uh, value in bringing us these healthy natural products. But the reality is they're selling to the elite. They're selling to the top 10, maybe 15% of consumers in our country. Well, what about the rest of the country, right? They need access to these same foods. So Thrive is one of the first companies that figured out how to get this done. And I gotta tell you, these guys are passionate, committed social advocates, but they're also incredible business people. They are zero to 100 million run rate in a year, faster than Snapchat, mm. right? So these guys are really committed and have the ability to build a multi-billion dollar brand on the on the foundation of a social good, right? It's an incredible, incredible model. We're, we're honored to be part, to be investors with them. All right, great. 
Um, so yeah, in addition to making uh, investments in entrepreneurs uh, that you believe in, you also created the Mike and Mauda Rampola Foundation that has the goals of philanthropy, volunteerism, grant making. Uh, can you tell us what this foundation is and what you're trying to accomplish? Sure. You know, it's a it's a very small foundation. Uh, Moore and I, in fact, with the support of some of our early investors, put some uh, equity aside from Zico and in, in, into this foundation, and eventually that turned into something. And so. We're in the process of figuring out exactly how we use that, but our our philosophy really is that we wanna we wanna invest in businesses. We wanna invest in social entrepreneurs that are making a, a real impact in the community. They might not be ones that would fit a traditional traditional investment vehicle like our fund, but it gives us a way to support those sort of impacts. So for example, one organization that we're involved with supporting and getting more involved with is called Homeboy Industries. Mm-hmm. It's a, a nonprofit started by a Jesuit priest here in LA that's dedicated to helping uh, keep young young men and women out of the gang life or get them into mainstream life after being in gangs or prisons. And they've got a number of small um, um, social enterprises they run. So we're investing with them and working with them to help them scale those, to sort of build almost a Newman's own type model where you know, they can have a, a large scalable business that creates a, st- a steady stream source, a sustainable source of revenue and income, but also jobs for these uh, individuals that might not have access to jobs in other ways. Mm-hmm. All right. So thank you. Uh, so now we covered what you're doing today. Uh, I want to rewind a little bit and okay. learn what it was like in the early days so we can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. So uh, you grew up in a very religious household that valued social activism, spiritual purpose and social responsibility. So as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up and what values did you learn uh, from your family that you still have today? Wow. Apologize about the helicopter in the background here. It'll, it'll be gone in a second. Um, well, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I think the first memory I have of something I wanted to be was an artist. Um, I think in, in, in you know, my family that was in, as encouraged as any other arena. I think I had a little bit of an inclination for that as a kid and I, I thought I wanted to be wanted to be an artist um, you know I think I, I, I had no interest or even a clue what a business person was I mean honestly the only business person among our family friends was a dear dear friend who was a, a salesperson for Maxwell House coffee right so that was my my complete exposure to the business world prior to going to college so you know I, I, I grew up in a family that valued education, learning, fun, you know, uh, social activism, but really didn't didn't stress or emphasize, find your career, figure out who you want to be. It was more about figuring out who you want to be as a person than who you want to be as a professional. So um, later you attended Marquette University and uh, you were drawn to business after meeting friends who had entrepreneurial parents, uh, but you struggled to reconcile your belief in making a social impact along with your newfound interest in business. You said you wanted to be a young master of the universe. Right. So what does that mean? Well, you know, this is the, this is the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So this was the era of, you know, the Wall Street, the first movie. And, you know, Gordon Gecko, the hero on that, um, had, you know, his catchphrase was greed is good, right? So, so this was an era where people were making millions on Wall Street, and, and I, I am absolutely comfortable admitting that I was drawn to that. You know, so so I brainstormed with friends about you know 
how we're going to run big corporations, you know, uh, become traders, you know, drive fancy cars and, you know, get all the girls and, and all, all the things that young men I dream about. <laughs> so, um, so after graduating, uh, you went to the Peace Corps and served as a small business development volunteer working uh, for local communities in Central America. You absorbed the culture, the people, the communities. You even drank coconut water daily, just like the locals did. So try to think back and remember your Peace Corps days, um, particularly your plane ride back to the United States after your time ended. Wow. Um, how did you feel you grew as an individual? Uh, and what were you going to miss when you were leaving? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, it wasn't a plane ride. It was a oh. bus ride. Um, oh, okay. when, I finished, uh, when I finished Costa Rica, I spent three months backpacking through, the, through much of Central America okay. and uh, wound up... Um, you know, I think somehow making my way to Durham, where I was, you know, enrolled to, to, to join to join uh, Duke in, in their uh, MBA program, environmental environmental management program. And I'll tell you what, I remember vividly that first day when I landed in Durham and went to the first orientation meeting. I felt like a fish out of water. I didn't have a clue where I was, who I was, how I fit into this world because I'd spent, you know, two years living in a rural community in in, in Costa Rica. And so, you know, honestly, it took me a while to integrate those two worlds and to figure out who I was, what that all meant to me and how it was going to fit into my life and career. And I read a lot about that. That's that's typical. Right. And there's been writing for 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 centuries, in fact, millennia about what it means for people to go abroad and come back and. And, you know, the, the, the original Viking stories about exploring new worlds. I think a lot of that is applicable even today in, in, in that when people, Peace Corps volunteers, military people, you know, expatriates, others that go abroad, reporters, you know, have this struggle of integrating their, their, their you know, foreign world in their domestic world. But eventually the two tend to merge and, and, and most people find some synergy between the two. So you mentioned you went to Duke University, their Fuqua School of Business. You got your MBA and your master's in environmental management. So you said that you liked all your subjects, but you didn't feel drawn to any one of them. And you consider yourself a generalist. So thinking back on your time at Duke, uh, how do you feel your studies prepared you um, for the world? And what do you think uh, you were prepared for most? Okay. Well, I think the, 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 the advantage and disadvantage of going to a you know, world-renowned, really incredible school like Duke is, is some brilliant people, right? And, and, and I, I am, you know, don't, don't consider myself one of them and, and was competing with some really, really smart people. And, and although Duke is an obscenely competitive culture, it's, it's one that um, you know, rewards and encourages dialogue and debate. And, and yes, there's classes and grades, and so you see how people do. So very quickly, I realized while you know I enjoyed and was competent in a finance class, man, there's ten guys and three women over here that are way better than I am, and that was true in human resources and operations and marketing. And so you know, I, I, I it was a balance between feeling frankly quite insecure, you know, realizing like, oh my God, I'm going to compete with these people to get jobs. Nobody's going to hire me, and I'm you know, yeah. going to compete in the real world, and also an insecurity about realizing. Um, I don't really understand how all these pieces fit together, right? What does marketing have to do with operations and human resources with, with finance? And, and, but that insecurity drove me. It drove me to really try to understand how they all fit together. And what I came to realize is 
as much as this world um, does and should uh, reward and, and value specialization, right? We all understand the importance of somebody that really goes deep and understands a field, and that's a wonderful way to build a career. The world also needs generalists. They need people that understand how all those pieces fit together. And at some point I realized that's what I wanted to do. Before I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I wanted to be a general manager. I wanted to be the guy that figured out how all these pieces fit together for any for a small size business, hoping that eventually when I grew to run a large business, that would be a skill set that served me very well. Yeah. So, yeah, after you uh, finished grad school, you, like you mentioned, you wanted to have a chance to actually run a business. Um, so as an interesting side note, one of your first internships was at the Coca-Cola company That's right. uh, in their corporate environmental affairs department. Uh, but... Uh, when you actually decided to work full time, you chose an international paper or IP in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. So, what happened from they or what happened from here, and uh, how'd you end up in Central America? Yeah, so you know, um, at the time, I was sort of I was very interested in how to integrate the the business and environmental worlds. And at the time, um, international paper was the largest landholder in the U.S. So I thought, hey, how interesting to try to understand how a corporation, a major corporation deals with land issues, land resources, forestry, water, all of those, all of those issues. At the same time, I, I did understand, you know, began to understand then, I think in part from working in the corporate environmental affairs department at Coca-Cola, that those functions, as valuable as they are, are only relevant if they, if they feed the core of the business, right? So I had some good mentors at the time that said, man, you really want to make an impact in a major corporation or any business, you got to know where they make money. Yeah. And so I decided to go to work on, you know, more of the conventional uh, money-making side of, of a business like international paper. And that just happened to be an opportunity that came up in their packaging business. Mm -hmm. And so um, I took a job in the uh, global packaging business based in Memphis, Tennessee. And one of the reasons was, frankly, uh, there wasn't a lot of competition for those jobs. You know, I don't know that I would have gotten a top job at a top tier investment bank in New York or one of the premier consulting positions. But international paper was, you know, not uh, brought in a very few number of MBAs per year. It was competitive, but not obscenely competitive. But the fact that I had this Peace Corps experience, I spoke Spanish, um, I had some international experience was interesting to them because the, the thought was I was on, a, they wanted people that could be on a path to eventually be general managers in some of their businesses, many of which were in Latin America. So. The idea was, hey, work for us for two years in Memphis, learn the business, contribute. If you show us you're really capable of doing something, maybe we'll give you a chance to go back to Latin America and run a business. And on a personal front, I had you know, met and fell in love with my beautiful wife, Moore, by that time. And, you know, she had lived and worked in Central America as well. And I think we were probably two of the few people in the world that were jumping up and down to move to El Salvador to uh to take on an assignment for international paper but when they told us that opportunity was there we, we jumped at it yeah so um when you quit when you uh went to ip in el salvador within two months uh you did something that helped you excel at the company uh really fast so you decided to look at every single thing on the balance sheet down to the invoice you actually went to the ground level look at the inventory uh where all the points of cash exchanged um so what did this kind of detail and attention uh, to the day-to-day -day operations teach you about business? Yeah, well, look, it's a little funny backstory about that. I can't remember if I even get into this in the book, but the reason I did that was because I almost got fired. Uh, you know, not, not exactly, but close. 
what happened was um, I, I remember sitting down with a, a, a finance person that was working for me at the time and basically learning and realizing that this guy was, let's just say, smoothing the earnings. <laughs> okay, So he had created some balance sheet accounts that allowed him to sort of fudge the, 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 the accounts and deliver what he believed that the corporation wanted to see every month or every quarter. Well, there's nothing technically illegal about it. But it was absolutely inappropriate, and you do not do that in a corporation. So I, as soon as I learned about that, you know, I talked to my my boss and talked to some of the finance people, and they came down hard. So I got an official letter in my file saying, "Hey, there were there were accounting improprieties that happened on your watch. Better not happen again." So I realized right then, uh oh, I didn't quite go as deep in my accounting classes as I probably should have. So I realized I need to know that balance sheet inside and out, every single line item. And the reality is before that, I didn't have a clue what that meant. And what I learned in that process is most business people don't, frankly, even good finance people may not be really experts on the accounting side. And it's critical, you know, in a, a, a decent business of any size, um, the balance sheet is really where a business lives or dies and particularly one that's ongoing. And so that was a tremendous learning opportunity for me to really force me to understand that business, understand where cash comes in, goes out, how it gets tied in, how is it used efficiently or not, and where people can game businesses and sort of game the balance sheet and, and, and income statement. So it was a hugely valuable in general. It was hugely valuable in that particular business. And it helped me tremendously as I grew and, and uh, took over other businesses. And it helps to this day to really understand, you know, what it, uh, what, where a business kind of lives or dies. Yeah. So, um, you're eventually promoted and you went from, uh, you got the chance to run entire, all the Latin American operations and it went from a $20 million division to a hundred million dollar business. So what business skills were different, uh, from running a, the 20 million to the 100 million, which was a significantly larger operation. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, the, the skill set changed uh, mainly at a couple levels. One was really thinking strategically about the whole region of Latin America versus a few countries in Central America. So what are the international dynamics? What are the opportunities for synergies across businesses and customers and other things? Uh, the human resource discussion became a lot more important. It was very critical. I had competent, strong managers in each of the businesses and made sure their teams were strong. So that was a skill set that I had cultivated a little bit, but really needed to, to, to hone in on. Um, also, board of directors, all the businesses I ran were joint ventures, which meant that International Paper, the parent company, owned anywhere from 51 to 80 percent of the businesses, but they all had local joint venture partners, you know, family, business people in each of these countries. And they expected a dividend check at the end of the year. They expected their value to grow. So, you know, and, and they, they had seats on the board of directors. So I learned the importance of, you know, engaging with board members, understanding outside uh, uh, investors, understanding how to balance, you know, their needs and the corporate needs. And it was an incredible learning opportunity. And I'm really thankful and appreciative to International Paper to this day that they gave me you know, young guy, uh, you know, XP score volunteer, fresh out of business school, an opportunity to do that. Yeah. So um, you had great success at IP. Uh, you're on track to climbing up the corporate ladder. Um, but uh, something didn't feel right for you um, or for your future. Uh, you said sometimes the closer to you get to your goals, the more you realize they're not really your goals. So it appeared that you're living the dream 
and you had a, su a successful career path ahead of you. Um, you had opportunities to maybe even run the tobacco packaging business from beverage right. to tobacco, you know. Um, but then you started questioning why. Why are you doing what you're doing? So what were you feeling in life at this point? Wow. <laughs> Deep questions, Javier. Um, you know, I think, I think people go through this at different stages in their life. Perhaps it was an early midlife crisis and, and, uh, or midlife directions, as my, my, I've heard people say it. But I think I was in a fortunate position where at a relatively young age, I was you know, a big fish in a small pond. So I, I was running a decent sized business. I got a chance to um, you know, play at a level in a small country of El Salvador where I was dealing with dignitaries and helping to negotiate trade agreements. And I and I had a had a sight to, to imagine where I might be in a few in a few years, five or ten years in a major corporation, and that gave me an opportunity to say, "Wow, is that really what I want?" And I and I think what 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 so many people don't do, young young business people, is really think through what they want. What is your life? It's your life to live. It's not what your parents say. It's not what your friends say. It's not what the press says. And I think so many people go through a career thinking what what it's what they want without really realizing what that means at that at that level or at that point in their life and so i was fortunate to have an opportunity to actually see that and actually spend a lot of time thinking about that and concluded i don't want that life um and and now the hard part was well then what did i what did i want right but i've always believed that half of strategy and business and life is knowing what you don't want to do right so at least i knew look i don't want to i don't want to be you know, a 50-year-old corporate executive. I don't care how much money I'm making. I don't care how big the business is. I want to lead a different life. And it's a, a my personal choice. It's a combination of how I want to live my life, the kind of uh, parent I want to model for my for my girls, the kind of contribution I want to try to make to the world is different than that. You know? So that sort of at least set the direction what I didn't want to go yeah. and, and forced me to start to ask the question, well, what do I really want? Okay, so uh, now that we know your background a little bit more, um, I want to get into your uh, Zico journey. Sure. Uh, so everything down to the gritty detail about your story is covered in the High Hanging Fruit book. So uh, if you want to learn more about the story, uh, check out the book. Um, but what I want to talk to you about, though, are the lessons you learned along the way. So sure. here it goes. Um, so one day, a close friend of yours asked you, uh, have you ever thought about starting your own business? Right. Uh, you said you weren't the idea guy. Right. Uh, then he told you, but that the only difference was that the only difference between you and an entrepreneur is the idea. Yeah. Um, but then that conversation seemed to flip a switch in you, yeah. and then after that, you became an idea machine, seeing right. opportunities at every corner. But uh, you saw a newfound uh, view of the world. But what I want to ask is, so what factors in life? in general that affected you or maybe other people in general um, make them feel like they can't have an idea that they're not creative um, right because as a kid you wanted to be an artist and be creative yeah that's right that's so right what yeah i think changes? you know i think that um you know life has all sorts of circumstances that drive us in different directions and i i personally believe there's no point in pointing blame or you know um, uh, crying over spilled milk and, and looking other than the look inside of oneself and really understand what is your thought process? What are those hidden stories you tell yourself? What are those tapes you run in your head? And a lot of people have coined different terms for them, but the one I really like came from Jack Canfield and it's called limiting beliefs. 
These are the things we tell ourselves if we're conscious and aware of it. We tell ourselves that limit our potential or, or keep us in our in our in our place and don't allow us to realize our full potential. And so one of the ones that for me I realize, and I have a list of you know 50 of them that I that I did over a period of time that really helped me understand thoughts that were limiting them. One of them was, you know, you can imagine this coming from my background. I have so much. I'm already so blessed. I'm so fortunate. How could I want any any more? Right. I must be a really greedy son of a bitch if I if I want more than I have. Right. There's something wrong with me. And I and I realize I don't blame my parents or my family or the Catholic Church or anyone for that. That's me. Right. And but I what I realized is I needed to reprogram myself and think about that differently. And so I started to think, wow, how wonderful is it that I can be um, I, I'm fortunate to be where I am, but I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be the kind of person that gives back. I'm going to be the kind of person that all along the way is is grateful, gracious, and am so pleased that I am uh, living an abundant life and I'm going to share that abundance with others. You know, And so I think that we all get into these, these and I'm not a psychologist, uh, but you know, there's, there's, we all get into these ways of telling ourselves these stories, whether we realize it or not. And I think it's only through, you know, reflection, through reading, through writing that one can become aware of those, put them where they are and decide whether you want those to drive your life or not. So for me, that was an important process. Yeah. So it was at this point you started uh, to keep a notebook or a journal. Um, Do you still have that notebook? By the way, I, I, I do. Uh, I have I have many of them. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, I prompted by some of your earlier questions uh, in advance. I, I pulled some of them out. I do have a couple of them around. Oh, is it within arm's reach or no? You know, okay. it, it, one of them is um, I got to remember what. Um, let's see what you want to be. Yeah. There was one I found. I don't want to waste a ton of your time. It was a oh. recently article. I'm not concerned. Really about it. There was one here that definitely was my first mention of coconut water here. Yeah. Here's here's a little. You want to want to yeah. hear a little piece? Yeah. This is a little bit of a prep prep, but there's a series of occurrences that made me think I may be at an interesting crossroads, though not the one I expected. And then I go on to talk early about you know my some of my IP interactions and some of my interactions with some of the senior executives that made me think, yeah, you know, I'm not sure that I want this career in IP. And at the same time, I talk about this meeting I had with this friend, David Andrade, that really got me thinking about, hey, maybe I can come up with an idea. So that's the first time I started to really think about that. And then at some point, um, just a couple months later, um, my comment is, I think I had an earlier reference to it, but what I refer to it as is just, uh, uh, I'm talking about different projects that I'm thinking about and, and you know, beginning to brainstorm. And one of them is, the other project is coconut water. Mm. I have a good basic business plan, and I'm about to hire MB, my sister, Mary Beth, to do branding and design work. After that, I need to put together the financials and figure out with whom I want to, to whom I want to pitch it. I'll probably need to seek some advice on how to determine how much share I sell, for how much money. Um, there's a lot of complexities ar- ar- around it. Um, but that's one of about six projects that I'm mentioning in the, at this yeah. point in my journal. You know? yeah. And that's a technique that I actually learned from my, my father-in-law, who is a world-renowned neuroscientist. And at one point, you know, he really challenged me before, well before this, asking me, you know, how do I really think about my life and business? And he asked me if I journaled. 
And I said, yeah, not, not, not really. And he said, well, you should. You know, you, you, you can't be a serious person, you know, in, in, in life or business or any field if you're not, you know, journaling for the exercise. And the more I read about it, I realized throughout history, it's been a technique that, that you know, many, many great leaders have used, uh, thinkers, leaders in business and science and art. And so I've found it incredibly valuable uh, to do that on a regular basis. Well, can I just see what the journal looks like? Yeah, sure. Just, it's uh, it's uh, well, just a regular journal. It's right? A little journal, and uh, actually, my daughter saw it. It's a little little uh, moldy. I gotta yeah. take it out and clean it every once in a while. Oh, but okay. it's you know, they're always a little little different. Some years I had I actually had one that I think I got from international paper um, that you know had every every day, and you can see I, I wasn't I wasn't perfect at it. You know, I get yeah. to the end here, I yeah. skipped a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, and it's been definitely not a, a, a perfect habit of mine, mm-hmm. but it's been something that's been really, really critical. And, and, and I would add to that another technique that I learned um, that I call thought time. You know, Bill Gates is famous for taking two weeks a year to go think about, you know, the business and Microsoft and the world. And I found that it was better for me to do it actually on a, on a, on a weekly basis mm-hmm. where I would take a few hours um, some afternoon, no cell phone, no Internet. Um, no, no, uh, no, no computer, uh, just a notepad, um, in fact, different than this journal, to brainstorm and think about you know, my life and the business and some of the best ideas I had for international paper. Many of the ideas and concepts for Zico and some of the best ideas for Zico came out of those thought time sessions. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, you were really excited about all your ideas. Uh, and you shared them with your wife, Mara. Um, when you told her about your ideas about filling in the gaps in the marketplace, uh, what did she tell you? Well, you know, some of the ideas uh, she wasn't exactly. She, she's uh, she's uh, um, she's a tough cookie and uh, very smart, and, and is uh, does not uh, does not um, deal with fools fools well. And I can be a fool at times. So she called me on the carpet for some of my ideas and said they 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 were pretty much worthless. You know, one of them was I was thinking about consolidating the dairy industry of Central America and. You know, she laughed at that. She's like, you know, you've hidden your love and passion for cows for me for all these years. You know, we don't even drink milk. You know, I was thinking about uh, consolidating, uh, uh, building a, a trucking infrastructure to go from Central America into Mexico into the U.S. And her response is, are you kidding me? Trucking like, you know, I'm a, I'm a public health official. Truckers are the biggest transmitters of, S, of, of sexually transmitted diseases in the regions. How possibly could we be associated with this? You know, yeah. so. She forced me to think more than just about making money, good business ideas, typical MBA screens, to think about what this really meant to us, uh, to our kids, to the world, and forced me to look deep inside and think about you know, what, we could, what we could contribute to the world. That would be fun and interesting as well. Yeah, so uh, what you guys did after that is you just spent two weeks of just reflecting about life and uh, what you want to do with your wife, uh, what you want to do in life in general. So. What were you guys really doing and how was it important in your development of uh, your business? Sure. Well, what we were physically doing was uh, taking walks. You know, we, we had, we've had a long history of taking really long walks. You know, you know, if we could pull it off with the kids in some way, two, three hour walks or hikes um, and intense ones. And where we're chatting about life, but we would often have an agenda. Right. Let's talk about where we want to live and why, right? What are the, what do you like? What do I like? What kind of places might we want to live? What are we looking for in a community or a city or a place we'd want to live? You know, um, what kind of life do we imagine having? You imagine, you know, I go to an office every day or we 
you know, living in an apartment or a house? Do we see being close to family or traveling with family? That those little details are things I think people forget to focus on, and and they're what makes up life. And and, and I found that it was incredibly valuable to actually focus on those first, and then start to talk about a business that we would build. So, for example, you know, we knew we wanted to. Uh, move back to the States and raise our kids um, in the States for at least some of their formative years, our girls. But we also knew we love Latin America and want to stay tied to it and have a reason to go back. So it's like, okay, what kind of business would allow us to do that, right? Um, uh, love international paper to death, but you know many of their corporate offices in the U.S. were in Memphis, Tennessee, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Texarkana, Texas. Wonderful places, but not places that we wanted to live. We wanted to live and, and have our work take us to you know, Seattle and Portland and Austin and New York and San Francisco and L.A. So, you know, what kind of business would, would do that? Um, we were active. We, we, we always knew, hey, we wanted to stay, you know, ski and, and, and you know, learn to surf and, and run and, and, you know, bike. And, and so, so what kind of business might keep us tied to an active, healthy, natural living? You know, so those were criteria that were personal, important to us personally, but wound up becoming non-traditional screens that helped us select a business that became really much more than a business but became a personal personal mission for us yeah so uh, then you you came back to your idea journal um and you looked at it through two screens one is your traditional mba screen to evaluate if the business is uh, viable um, but then you also had a personal screen and your goal was to pass the mara test right. so um what did these screens help you with, particularly the personal one? And you can also talk about the MBA one, too. Sure, sure. Well, you know, what, what, what happened is, you know, more and I would take these walks, have the discussion. And we had, you know, we were at that point had been married for probably, you know, four or five years and been together for, you know, uh, five or six. So we knew each other pretty well. So um, out of those discussions, I went back and, you know, my homework assignment was, you know, hey, I'm the one that wanted to go to the business. So I, I had the homework assignment of putting together in some framework, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what I did was, you know, very in sort of a parallel to the business screens, you know, is it, is it, is it a BHAG, like Jim Collins says, a big, hairy, audacious goal? Does it have good growth, growth uh, potential, high margins? Um, you know, can you differentiate it? Um, a very series of brand screens. I developed a series of personal screens and they were about, you know, how does this, how does this fit with our values? Will it allow us to travel to places we want to travel to? Is it something that's associated with health and wellness? Is it something that we think our girls will think are cool someday? You know, is it something that uh, will keep us tied to Latin America? So they were very personal to us, but but helped us then quickly evaluate ideas that I was generating to see. Yeah, you know what? It sounds great. It's going to make a lot of money, maybe, but it doesn't fit with our personal screens and. One of the reasons that I knew or I kind of believed that this is important is so important is the more I read about entrepreneurship, I realized that typically businesses take at least five years to get to a point where they're reasonably stable, very often 10. Right. And I had never done anything in my life more than about two years before that. So what I realized is, man, if I'm going to commit to something, I, I assume, look, it's going to take five or 10 years for it to be successful. If I'm going to commit to something for five to 10 years, it better damn well be something I love and it better hit every one of my priorities because if it's only about making money, 
then I'm very likely to lose interest, right? To get to a point where I say, yeah, you know, it's tough on my family, it's tough personally, it's stressful, maybe I'll go do something else, right? Yeah. So, but I realize if I can find something that really uh, uh, hits, you know, uh, fills me at multiple levels, physically, mentally, spiritually, at the level of my soul, then I'm more likely to be able to stay committed to it for the 10 years it's gonna take for it to be successful. Yeah, so with the help of your wife, uh, you realized that what you were actually doing was reaching higher. Um, So you're in essence uh, looking to combine entrepreneurship with your deep personal values of personal uh, purpose and mission, and you called this capitalism 2.0. So what's this theory and what does it mean to reach higher? Yeah. So what it what it means to me is, you know, originally I thought, um, yeah, this is this is, you know, me and, and, and my sort of pursuit. And certainly there's been some wonderful other examples of this. You know, John Mackey at, at Whole Foods uh, writing about conscious capitalism. And it's been there have been a lot of thought out there over the years. But what I think is that was the that was the beginning of this. What I think is really a movement. What I've learned since going through my own process in Zico and really seen just in the last, you know, five, maybe 10 years is is thousands of entrepreneurs starting with this same sort of mission, starting with the same sort of objective and where, you know, when I was going to college, you know, the guys, men and women and I were talking about ideas. It's about, you know, how are you going to make a ton of money, right? Where's the biggest opportunity? Where's the gap in the market? Where's the profitability? And that was really true pretty much even through my time at, at, at Duke in graduate school. But I'll tell you what, I go back now to college universities, to business schools and talk to young entrepreneurs. It's a given. They are, you know, I'd say the majority, if not the vast majority, are absolutely committed that there's a different way to do business, that you can make a social impact. And that's that becomes um, table stakes. That is the way they are approaching business today. And so I think that's revolutionary. I think the potential that that has to impact our world when we really have these world-class entrepreneurs, they're not only about, you know, they're not, they're not missionaries or mercenaries. They are visionaries, right? They are thinking about, look, yes, we're going to figure out how to make money. Yes, we're going to impact the world, but we're going to do both of them at scale. This is not small little social enterprises in a little community. This is not just a little fair trade business that trades with, you know, weavers in, in Colombia. Um, these are people that are thinking about and are building multi-billion dollar brands that have the chance to disrupt major industries and they're doing it with a fundamental social mission, right? That's revolutionary. Yeah, so that's interesting because um, when you were starting Zico, you saw your competitors um, who were in the ice box or in the refrigerated section, uh, you didn't see them as competitors. You saw them as fellow seekers. Um, And they weren't experts when they launched their business, but they had something different, which was compelling. Uh, They had an authentic story and a mission. So why is this personal mission and story more important than experience? Yeah. So, you know, when they all qualify on that, that was a little bit of naivete on my part. Right. I I quickly realized that, yeah, these these guys may some of them have a mission, some of them don't, but they're all competitive. Right. And so I learned you got to compete. There's no substitute for that. But look, I think in this day and age, it's it's sort of a given that um, an entrepreneur has got to be smart. You've got to have a certain level of of experience. You've got to have an ability to learn. Um, But what I what I find is that um, again and again, when I look at the, the, the entrepreneurs that have been successful, you know, not all of them, there are some that are purely about the bottom line, 
But when I look at most of the ones that are successful and most of the ones that I think are going to be successful, they have this deep personal passion and commitment to change the world in the way that they think it needs to be. And what I believe and have seen is and you know found personally is that's what gets you through the tough times, right? Because there's going to be ups and downs in businesses. There's going to be on the verge of bankruptcy. There's going to be challenges. And if it's only about the money, I think there's a chance that, oh, well, I'm going to go do something else or I'm going to morph my business to be profitable in the way that it needs to be profitable. That's great, right? I'm not, I'm not um, rejecting that idea. But what I'm saying is the people that I want to be associated with and get me excited are so committed to their mission, they almost don't care whether it's going to make money or not. And, and, and the irony is it's more likely to because they're going to do whatever it takes, right? Yeah. They're going to if that means that they don't have to take a salary for a period of time, they're not going to take a salary for a period of time. If that means that they need to bring in investors and take a hit on their valuation, they'll take a hit on the valuation. If that means that they need to you know, run a business at a, at, at a break even for a period of time or lose money for a period of time, they are going to do what it takes to achieve their mission. And in this day and age, I think that that's, first of all, what it takes to really break through. But it's also that passion and commitment that attracts investors, employees, consumers, retailers. Everybody wants to be part of this, of a mission more than just a product or a service. Yeah. And you did say that uh, you realize that they were competitors. Um, and in the industry, you realize that there's a ton of competitors in the beverage space. Um, but you said they provided plenty of case studies for you. Right. Uh, and you said they're the best resource uh, to learn from. So what you did was you tracked down the founders of other companies like Sobe, Vitamin Water Fuse, Nantucket Nectars. Yeah. Um, what did you do when you reached out to them? What were you seeking to learn from them? You know, um, um, sometimes it was specific, sometimes it was general advice, but what I was clear with all of them was, hey, look, you know, admired what you did, um, saw you do this. Can I ask you some questions? And usually it was very specific. I was always very respectful of their time. Um, you know, tried to be specific with what I was what I was after. But what I wanted was advice. You know, so um, you know, uh, learning sometimes it was about distributors, right? Look, I'm making a decision whether or not to go with this distributor. Looking at a contract, can I pick your brain for five minutes on some watchouts to be aware of, right? You know, I'm debating about whether or not we expand into you know, all, all the natural food channels or we stay really focused. Can I get your opinion on that? What worked for you? What do you think is happening today? You know, I'm evaluating this broker versus that broker. Do you have any experience? Or, what I found is that when you're asking somebody for advice, very few are gonna shy away from that. And particularly when you're respectful of their time, specific about what you'd like to ask, and, and frankly, you know, take that advice in many ways and, and, and listen to it and incorporate it into your business. Uh, people more often than not are more than happy to give it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, going a little bit forward, you started doing the packaging and the design for Zico. Um, there are a number of options. Uh, but one question came uh, is, are you selling a commodity or an aspiration? And you said that there could be a benefit to one or another, but you chose to to choose aspiration. So can you talk about this with your brand? Yeah, sure. You know, I think it's I think it's important with any brand or product or service for that matter to really understand your positioning. Fundamentally, how are you positioned? What's the value proposition to consumers? And there's many, many ways to, to look at that. But one simplistic way is, you know, commodity versus real value added. And even beyond value added is sort of an, an aspiration. And so yeah, what I realize is, hey, there's some businesses that are based on on a on, on a commodity, right? For many many years, 
uh, uh, white fluid milk was a commodity. It was what, what people in the industry called a lost leader. It, it's what got people into the store so they could buy other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And dairies, you know, some of them didn't do so well. Some did fine on huge volume at low margin, and you can build businesses that way, right? It's a sort of pre- proven model in certain ways. But at the same time, what I realized is, you know, a couple things. One, if we're going to build a, a, a value-added category, one that has margin that works for brands, but also works for producers, um, that's not a commodity, right? And I also realized that uh, brands, you know, sort of by definition, a brand is it's the price at which that product or that brand is worth versus other commodities that are out there. And so, you know, what I what I what I realized is what what other wonderful consumer products and, and, and brands, you know, in the beverage category, uh, vitamin water was one of them, Red Bull was another. Um, they created an aspiration, Heineken, they created a, 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 a mood or an experience that consumers wanted to have, right? You want that Heineken at a certain time of day, you want that Corona experience of a beach, you want that energy that a Red Bull delivers. And, and ultimately, I, I came to understand, I'm not a marketing whiz, but I came to read enough and understand that we as consumers, as humans, are motivated by a complex series of emotions and that aspirations are a very important part of them. So if we could tap into a healthy, positive aspiration for consumers and help them understand how Zico, coconut water in general and Zico in specific, help to achieve that aspiration, you know, we're at a, we're at a different game. We're at a game that has uh, significantly more value than a commodity, but also has significantly more scale than a niche brand. And so that was an important distinguish, distinguish, uh, dist- distinguishing choice for us to understand that we really wanted to build this brand that was about it was aspirational. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just want to just side note. Uh, you said when you're reaching out to companies, you want to be respectful of their time. So I want to be respectful of your time. Sure. Um, is it okay to continue asking questions? Or yes, you're, still it is. Good? you're still good. Okay. Yep. All right. So um, your original mission was to preserve the quality of your family life, and that was really big. Um, but at one point, you missed the mark because at during dinner time, you had a phone call from your sister Mary Beth. And uh, you ended up getting up and taking her call. Even though it was only 10 minutes long, your wife said, it's not going to be this way. Um, So you learned something that moment. And uh, you had to learn about habits and discipline and the value of defining boundaries, how to be present in the moment in everything you do. Um, So for people who have very busy schedules, how can they balance their life and their business? Sure. Well, you know, the first thing I'll comment is, look, Moore's a, a very rational person, right? So it's not like she was just drawing some random line on this. I had been pretty out of control in my work and travel schedule. And I think she was making a very clear statement about, you know, where her limits and expectations were. So it was very rational and appropriate. But what it, what it forced me to learn was, you know, and in fact, I remember the exact phrase that I said to her, which ultimately led in some ways to the title of the book was, I realized she was setting the bar higher, right? She was saying, look, I understand you want to go for this. I understand you want to do it. I'm going to support you, but let's let's not lose what we have, right? And so what I realized then was, how do I go for what I'm after and build this business and hopefully make an impact on the world, but not lose everything I have? How do I how do I get it all really in some ways? And I think I think you know the reality is life is tough. You have to make trade trade offs and compromises. So I it was very important for me to define my win. And what I realized is 
if I if I built that billion dollar brand and it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and was known throughout history as the king of the coconut water world and changed the lives of millions of people, but died at 55 of a heart attack, you know, got divorced and had a miserable relationship with 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 Mora, hardly knew my kids, you know, screwed people along the way. That wasn't a win for me. Right. So. Knowing that forced me to start out, okay, I want to go for this, but I have these constraints, right? I want to, I want to see my family. I want to be, stay close to my wife. I want to know my daughters. I want to stay healthy. But I also realized that my productivity was directly correlated with my ability to do those things. And this has come out recently. You know, there's been a lot of research on this, but more recently, Ariana Huffington wrote a great book called Thrive that talks a lot about this. People need sleep. People are more productive with sleep, right? It's now, you know, everyone kind of believes it, but so few people practice it. I realized that. I realized early in my career, my marginal return on effort went like this when I wasn't taking care of myself. I just couldn't be productive for, you know, 12, 14, 15 hours a day. When I was sleeping well, exercising, spent time with my wife and kids, my head was clear. I was able to be present and, and clear-headed and healthy enough to make good decisions and, and, and work intelligently when I was working. So I quickly realized it wasn't about the quantity of work, it was about the quality, and it was also about the quality of my life. And, and it was always a, a challenge, it was all, never easy, but I constantly prioritized, hey, I'm gonna see, see, spend time with my kids, I'm gonna have dinner with them every chance I can, I'm gonna be there and free on Sundays, I'm gonna take vacation, when I'm working, it's going to be intense, but um, I'm going to I'm going to build those priorities in. Yeah. So just you mentioned sleep. Um, you would go to sleep at 10 o'clock p.m. and wake up at uh, like 4 or 4:30 a.m. Go for a run, yeah. and that was your time. So it was like six hours was good for you. Well, yeah. You know, for for some for some years it it it, 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 it was. You know, I, I I now I'm at a point where I I really try to get eight. You know. Mm -hmm. But I think everybody's a little bit different. What, what's clear is, for me and for very few people, there's a lot of people that I used to hear people all the time say, oh, I need four hours of sleep. That's all I need. I'm, I'm good. And I used to feel like a weakling you know, or, or, or ineffective in some ways. And what I realized is most of them are full of crap, right? And most of them probably are going to have suffer later in life. And now that I'm getting into my mid to late 40s and I see some friends and colleagues that lived that way for a long time, you can see the wear and tear on them, right? But, um, but, you know, I was, um, I had a lot to do, you know, Zeke was an intense time. And so, um, you know, usually that five, six hours sleep was adequate, um, catching up for it on the weekends. But when I was good about that, getting to bed at 10 and getting up at five, you know, that's seven hours of sleep. That's usually, that is good for me. I'm a believer in a sleep cycle. So I know my sleep cycle. And you know, eight actually throws me off. Seven and a half, uh, seven and seven and a half is about perfect for me. When I get that, I'm, I don't need an alarm. I get up when I want to get up, and I'm and I'm good. Okay, so um, yeah, so we'll fast forward a little bit. You raised money, and you had your first product sourced, and then you went to your first product uh, trade show, the fancy food show in New York. Um, do you? You have the photo of your first trade show experience. Yeah, I, I do on my computer. I, oh. I, I unfortunately wasn't able to find a, a printout of it. I don't know how, how well this is going to turn out, but I got a couple here. Um, I think I can show you. We'll see if you can see. There's no way. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, 
Yeah, that looks nice. That's the original booth. Yeah. Um, 10 foot by 20 foot booth. And we spent a lot of money on that. And, and, you know, at times I thought it was an absurdity to do that much, but it really paid off. Uh, let's make it the angle right here. This yeah. is not me, but this is some other of our team mm -hmm. uh, giving samples away. Yeah. We literally, literally had people three or four deep at this show in small, in no small part because the booth was so beautiful. They didn't, I, half the time I didn't know if they thought it was a personal care item or a, uh, you know, nobody even knew what coconut water was, but it really made a positive impact. And there's uh Oh, that's you. That's me. First, first trade show, 2004. Nice. A little more, a little more hair, a little yeah. less gray at the time. <laughs> so um, who was that Mark Rampola? You know, I, I think he was, uh, I think he was the same guy. You know, I, I believe character endures that, that fundamentally I, I haven't changed that much. I was certainly, um, you know, uh, a lot, lot more ignorant about this, about this industry. I, I look back and think how little I knew about, uh, the beverage industry, the food industry, entrepreneurship. Uh, um, uh, but I was, um, you know, fortunately ignorant enough to just jump in. And I think, um, um, ambitious, but also um, very, very uh, uh, nervous, very insecure. But, you know, one of my favorite quotes is uh, George O'Keefe said that the painter said, I've been afraid every day of my life, but I never let it stop me from doing what I want. Right. So I was scared. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was moving forward and, and uh, you know, just uh, enjoying life. Yeah. So after that trade show, you had some initial success and uh, you eventually signed on an exclusive deal with the distributor. Um, and you received some really hard advice. You yeah. said you've got to be ready to give until it hurts and then give some more. Once everybody <laughs> makes money in it, then maybe, maybe you'll make some money. How, yeah. So how, yeah. what was that statement? How true? Wow, that is the infamous um, H. Uh, uh, Irving uh, Hal Hershkowitz, the uh, founder and, and owner for many years of Big Geyser in New York. And this guy's a legend in the beverage industry and a character and really a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, and he, uh, you know, he, he, he spent some time with me and, and was in some ways, uh, you know, a, a very tough mentor for me. You know, this guy grew up on the streets of New York and, and built a, built a business, you know, bottle by bottle, case by case. And he was tough as nails and he, you know, he knows the industry and his, his message was, man, you think you're going to come in here and make money the first year, the first two years, the first five years, you're wrong. Right. But if you are willing to give and give and give and give, you know, eventually maybe you'll make some money, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it's great advice. There's a, there's a great new book I'm reading right now called by Adam Grant, Give and Take. And it's, oh. it's about the giving mindset right now. You know, that is a little bit more on sort of the social front. This was literally about money, right? Oh. And the, his message was, I've got distributors that are, that are living and dying on what they sell every day. You, you got a job, you got a family, you're going to be fine. These guys need to make money today, not in five years. So figure out how to have them make money today, this month, next year. Focus on them. You know, if they need extra cases, give it to them. If they need to make some extra margin, give it to them. Help them win, and then you'll win. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was hugely valuable advice uh, that, that serves in many, many businesses is recognizing, you know, you have to fit into an ecosystem. You've got to figure out how to make others in your ecosystem, your suppliers, your customers, make sure you're delivering value for them, right? Ideally, you got to figure out how to make it work for you as well, but that may take time. You know, think about 
think about how long Amazon has lost money, right? And people thought Jeff Bezos was crazy, but he showed, look, if you deliver value enough, and sometimes at a, at, even at a loss, ultimately, what did he do? He embedded himself in all of our lives, right? Who, who lives without Amazon these days? So I think there's many, many examples of this sort of give until it hurts uh, mindset. Yeah, and so he was so Big H was correct, yeah. and uh, you almost went into bankruptcy. Um, oh yeah. yeah. So you then you asked yourself the question: Is this what it really means to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. So. Um, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur when you're facing almost bankruptcy? Well, look, I think, um, I think you know, there's a lot of uh, definitions of it. And I'm, I'm not going to claim to have the most articulate one. But I think, I think you know, ultimately, what my, my response to many entrepreneurs, particularly young ones, is, look, how much do you want to, you know, you, you, you say this is your vision, right? So as much as I, I do want to see the passion and the vision, my next question is, okay, what are you willing to do to get it, Right. Are you willing to spend your life? Are you willing to spend 20, 30 years of your life, even if you don't make any money to achieve your vision? Very few people can say that, but I can tell you somebody that can credibly say that is has a much higher chance of success because the reality is sometimes it takes 20, 30 years to, you know, you read these stories about these entrepreneurs have been just been at it again and again and again. And the sure way to fail is to give up, right? Now, that may be one business fails, one iteration fails, one structure fails. You know, I think of a, a friend of mine, Doug Evans, that started uh, a business now called Juicero. Um, he started a business called um, Organic Avenue in New York, one of the first or fresh press juice businesses. Uh, uh, built that up to be successful, five or six outlets. I think it took him about a decade to get it up there. Got kind of screwed by some investors and wound up uh, losing control of his company. The company eventually went bankrupt. Doug didn't care. He, his vision from the beginning was build the best possible fresh juice in the world, right? Yeah. So he went, dove back into the business, but built it from the ground up, built it smarter with better investors and more money, raised close to $100 million before he even launched his business, and now is building a, a business called Juicero that's gonna be worth a billion dollars. He doesn't care, he drives an old Prius, lives in a simple apartment, hardly spends any money. All he cares about is achieving his vision of delivering the freshest, uh, most nutritious juice on the planet. Yeah, and so he's gonna achieve it. Yeah. Also, I uh, just letting you know the lighting. I think it's sunset over there. Uh, yeah. Is there any way to close the blinds or no? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, that looks good. Perfect. Tweak it a little All bit right. there. Yeah, that looks good. Okay. Um, so when you were at that low point, not knowing uh, if you were gonna make it, you start. You did something different. You started um, delving into positive psychology. You practiced right. daily thoughts of gratitude. Yeah. During your morning runs, uh, you were tell. What were you telling yourself during your um? ritual of daily positive affirmations right so you know i used to i used to joke at people that talked about this stuff and you know read this stuff and i used to think uh, you know tony robbins some of these guys were just uh you know nut jobs that only only losers really listen to that stuff well you know when i i i got things were tough for me i started looking for anything i could as uh, to, to help me out and i started to understand that there is some value. You know, I don't claim to know the, the, the data and science behind it, but for me personally, there was tremendous value in this sort of positive thought process. So, you know, as corny as it sounds, I would go on my morning, my morning runs and my chants were, you know, things like, um, all you ever need is inside you now. Tony Robbins quote, all you ever need is inside you now. And, and the mindset is not, oh, I don't need anybody in the world, but the mindset is I have within me the capability to do what I need to do in this world, right? 
and um, and uh, you know, um, um, it was just um, I'm thankful. You know, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy for my health. I'm happy for my kids. And and going through those sort of mantras, I found put me in a place where I was ready for anything that happened during the day. You know, maybe it's a little mental trick. Maybe it's reprogramming. I don't know how it works. I can't explain to you how it works, but it worked for me. And I've found to this day that, you know, there is an importance in putting and keeping myself in a positive mental state. And I have the ability to do that. I can get into like anybody, these mental ruts. Oh, I'm not good enough. Why did I do that? I'm an idiot. I'm wrong. But I can also remind myself, man, I'm happy to be alive. I feel, I feel good. I'm happy with what I'm doing. Yeah. I made some mistakes in the past, but I'm going to focus on, uh, on the positive. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, you were, you're going for a turn, you're being positive, but sometimes the market doesn't respond the way you want it to. And it's not because of lack of effort that it doesn't right. take off. So, um, sometimes things get worse before they get better. Yeah. So in your case, in most cases, people start their company out of their garage and then they grow up and then they go into an office building. In your case, it was the opposite. Yeah. It went from an office building back to your garage. Yeah. And then you decided, okay, I just need to put my head down and plow right through it. That's right. So how do you know that it's important to plow right through versus to pivot and do something else? Yeah, great question. So. Look, I don't think there's any perfect answer on that, um, and, and, um, and, and I'm certainly not the expert on knowing when that is. What, 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 I, what I believe is that um, you, know, you, you need to know yourself, right? You need to be very self-aware and understand your own limits, your own situation. And in my case, you know, in a committed relationship, that of my partner, of, of Mora. And, and so you know, it was very important that we were having an open dialogue together. And that she felt that I was going to respect her decisions. I have a pretty high tolerance for risk, so you know, and, and for and for pain in some ways, right? And she had never had really super high expectations about living a crazy high life, but she had re reasonable expectations. Hey, I would like to be able to, you know, uh, not worry about our mortgage, right? To be able to pay our credit card bill, to be able to take a, a modest trip every once in a while, reasonable things, right? And so that was a, a debate we had. And I think there were there were some occasions when, you know, it looked like we might not be able to pay our mortgage uh, next month. We not might be able to pay our bills next month. We might have to sell our house. And, and it wasn't just one month. Right. There was a, about a three year period where that was kind of every month or two. We had those discussions and debates. And, and, you know, we would we had very good communication. It was never perfect, but we were able to say. You know, my question to her was always, look, are you done? Right. Is if, if this is too much for you, I'll get a job. Right. And I think allowing her to know that I was willing to do that was huge. Right. And allowing myself to know that I was going to do that was huge. Right. Because there's there's a point at which pride takes over and can be very dangerous. I've had some friends that out of pride would never take um, a job lower than they where they should have been. Um, or never do work outside of their business, even though their business was tanking or their career was was taking a you know really bad trip. So much so that they you know they had to sell their house and take their kids out, and their marriage fell apart, and they became alcoholics. Right. So, you know, there's a point at which you got to understand some limits and let push pride aside. So, I think I was always clear that look, I want to do this, I believe in it, but I'm not going to let pride stand in my way of making rational decisions. And fortunately, you know, we always kept reevaluating that, you know, every year, every quarter, often every week to say, you know what, 
we're in this again. Ups and downs, we're in this again, and we're going to keep going for it. Yeah, and so the good news is uh, after that, Zico started taking off, and you started growing off, growing really fast, doubling, tripling, like year over year. Right. Um, and so what you needed to do is build a team really fast. Um, right. And so what you're doing is building a team and a culture. Um, what culture were you trying to build? Who were you looking for? Um, how did you evaluate potential hires? Sure. Well, you know, by that time, I, I, I understood um, a lot more about the beverage industry than I did earlier. And I, and I realized that um, building a beverage brand uh, in, the, in, in the U.S. still to this day really hasn't changed that much in, you know, 30 some years. It takes feet on the street. Uh, it takes individuals that um, it takes a clear strategy, a great product, uh, you know, a unique offering. But then it takes the ability to execute. And that executional ability is about. Um, you know, a daily fight, it's a daily grind to get your products into distributors, to make sure it stays on the shelf, to make sure it's executed well, to make sure the promotions are in place, you don't use your, your, use your, lose your shelf space, you know, all those little details make or break a brand. And so I learned that, and I learned that from Big Geyser and others that had succeeded and failed in New York. And so the first goal I was after was to build that sort of team, because I, I got it, but frankly, I wasn't the expert at it. I hadn't done it for you know, as, as well as some of these other people. So I was looking for to build a team that had that capability. And so, you know, and what I what I knew is I, I didn't want to teach somebody that I wanted somebody that had done it before. So what did I what was I looking for people that had done it for other brands that had done it successfully at the time, you know, vitamin water was one of the hottest brands on the planet. And so um, they were very successful in New York and in our distributor at Big Geyser. So I looked to pluck a couple of I didn't want people, but but I didn't want the highest level executives. I wanted people that knew how to get it done in New York that could join and execute immediately. So I wanted people that loved Zico, right? I didn't want to have to uh, see them, you know, uh, 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 spaking it at, at retailers and then decide they, they they hated it. They had to love Zico. They had to believe in the mission. They had to be very self-aware. They had to know the streets of New York and understand how to execute things. And they had to have a run through walls mentality, which to me meant I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it done. I didn't want to hear, you know, excuses. Oh, you know, I couldn't get that display. I couldn't get this account. I couldn't get the distributor. I wanted people that said, you know what, we're going to figure it out. Right. And, and, and so that's the kind of team we built. Yeah. So um, you originally at IP had the management philosophy called performance development roadmap. Right. So you identified you people took an assessment, you identified their weaknesses and then you stressed, oh, how can we develop your weakness? But why is this not the right thing to do? Right. So, you know, I think that's a wonderful technique and tool in a corporate setting where you can afford to develop people over, you know, three, four five years. Right. So you bring in a young executive, uh, a college grad, an MBA, somebody, and you, you put them through a series of rotations and you're trying to round them out to be a good corporate, you know, player and general manager, right? But in the, in the um, even in that setting, I've come to question it, but absolutely in an entrepreneurship setting, it doesn't make any sense at all. And what I've come to sort of accept and realize is we all have strengths and weaknesses. And the wonderful thing in life or any organization or relationship is when you can complement each other's strengths and build on each other's strengths. Manage your weaknesses, right? Know where they are. Maybe fill them in. Maybe, maybe um, you know, round them out in some ways. Weaknesses can take us down. But to mainly play to people's strengths. And so, you know, I started 
um, getting, uh, developing the ability to, to or at least uh, uh, improving my ability to identify and assess people's own strengths. I love when people are very self-aware and understand their own strengths and weaknesses. And when people are at their best is when you can put them in their strengths, play to their strengths. When you think about a football team or a basketball team or a soccer team, you know, the best ones really understand each other, understand who's the passer, who's the, who's the, the scorer, you know, who, what roles people play, and they can complement each other. And I think it's true in any business as well. Yeah, and so um, at the time, the beverage industry was a very male-dominated industry. Right. So, but you found that hiring women, uh, they were actually able to reach higher uh, and this was a good advantage for you, um, especially when you're bringing in talent that wasn't being considered by other people. So um, what have you learned about the females that worked in your business? Well, look, you know, I think um, obviously, you know, we had, we had a lot of both incredible men and women. But but I, I, it was it was curious to me as, you know, son of a strong mother and strong sisters and strong wife and two uh, young, young daughters that I know are going to become strong women. How the beverage industry seemed to be completely male dominated, and 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 it just it just surprised me in this day and age. But you know these industries happen this way and are, are built this way. I don't think it's in, intentional on the on the on the part of many people. Some it is, but I think it just sort of happens, right? But what I realized is I wanted to create a, a culture that was a little bit different, and I also realized there was some incredible talent out there. And so, um, so we had you know women at at every level of Zico from you know, street demos to salespeople to marketing people to finance to operations to our, you know, my sort of at some point number two in the business as a, a CFO, COO was a, was a woman, Candace Crawford. And and, um, you know, it's it's um, it's um, I, I came to believe that, first of all, they bring um, a different perspective. Right. So our brand was marketed, probably wound up being, you know, 60 percent of our consumers, at least were women. So you know, it helps to have women on your team that understand, right? Um, uh, retailers, um, um, if they're used to seeing all men that come to them every day, sometimes it's delightful to see a woman and have a different energy in, in, in the room and to think differently about their business. Um, it just so happened that, you know, much of our operations team was women. It did, not that we sought it, sought it. They just, okay. just happened to find some really competent women that were very strong, you know, not for... Uh, uh, um, you know, one woman in particular, Erica, was, you know, I think I think I think uh, some of our vendors feared her. Right. Because she was tough, no nonsense and a tough negotiator. Right. So there's advantages to to, uh, you know, competent, self-aware women that understand how to how to be themselves, but yet be, be, be competent, strong business people. So there's no doubt that um, that energy, the, those abilities that these women brought helped to make Zico what it was. And, and, and also, you know, frankly, kept me in line at times, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and helped me always recognize what was important and, and really helped me kind of keep my values if I was ever, ever losing my way. Yeah. So um, eventually, yeah, you got an initial investment from Coca-Cola and eventually uh, they bought you out. Um, so why, two questions. So why is selling to a large company not always selling out? And also, yeah. how do you grapple with the idea that you just spent all your time and energy into this business that's now not not going to be yours? You thought it's right. not going to be for your kids. It's not yours anymore. Right. Well, look, I think these these are ultimately very personal decisions that an entrepreneur um, has to make with his or her team and, 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 and you know, investors and partners. 
And, and I think ultimately it's about, you know, two things. What, what do you want, right? What is your vision? What do you want for your company, for yourself? And also there's a time and place where market dynamics sort of dictate certain decisions are better, better to make or not. So for me, from the beginning, my vision was to see Zico become a, you know, billion dollar global brand that made a massive impact on the world. And, 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 and for better or worse, my choice then, and, and I you know, held to that choice throughout the, this journey, was to see that happen through a major company. And Coca-Cola was my choice. You know? And from my wife and I used to joke from the beginning, how, could you imagine if we can figure out how to help Coca-Cola make billions selling something healthy like coconut water? How cool is that? Right. So that was our vision. Um, personally, um, you know, I like I said, I tend to move on to different things. I don't have uh, the best attention span. And so. You know, I, I, I had a 10 year goal. My goal was in 10 years to see this business at a point where somebody else would take it over and or buy it out. Right. Yeah. And now if, if the circumstances were right or necessitated it, I could have run Zico for the rest of my life and loved it and found it very re rewarding. But I also knew there were a lot of other things I wanted to do with my life and, and, and you know, find new things to do and new ways to contribute, new things to learn. Yeah. And so that path you know, sort of made sense for me. And all that sort of fit in with the Coca-Cola company, right? They were not interested in making a minority investment for uh, just the return. They their interest is in the in the you know owning and, and, and putting billion-dollar brands with brands with billion-dollar potential into their portfolio, and so that made sense um, for for them. I also realized that for Zico to really achieve its full potential within the Coca-Cola system, they needed to own it, right? They're just not a company that does. Um, has a has a long history of doing long-term joint ventures, right? So all those things aligned and the timing just seemed to work out about about right, um, that it felt like it was the right thing to do for the brand, for the business, for me personally, for our team. And, you know, I felt I felt like, hey, you know, I have two daughters. Uh, my wife and I have felt like Zico is our, our, our only son. Yeah. And we feel like, hey, kid graduated from high school, got into one of the best universities in the world, the Harvard of the business of the beverage industry, the Coca-Cola company. If he can't figure it out and they can't figure it out, it's not our problem, you know? So um, at one day, you're driving from your office, going back home, you get a call from your CFO. You kind of had a feeling what the call was gonna be about, so you ended up pulling over to the side of the road and she told you the money's being wired into the account. Right. So from that moment, you had a moment of silence. Uh, what was going on in your head? It, it was all just surreal, you know, and, and uh, I think I think through my head was thinking, is this is this really happening? Did you know, we, we this was sort of the vision from from 10, 12 years ago, you know, nine years from the time we started. it. Is this really happening? And of course, through my head is also going, going, God, I hope this isn't one of those scenarios where, you know, the guy. Uh, hits the jackpot and, and 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 you know gets in a car accident that you know loses his life or something. So I wanted to take be cautious and make sure I'm driving very carefully. And um, you know I, I I've I've learned I haven't always done it, but I but I've learned the importance of taking a moment of reflection. You know to just stop, look around, and recognize what's happening in one's life. And this was one of those really rare, incredible moments to think that this is you know, pretty much happened and played out pretty much exactly the way we had imagined it nine or 10 years earlier, you know, so it was just a little surreal. Yeah, and uh, in the board, in a board meeting with Coca-Cola, um, you said three billion would be a good number, a little yeah. bit less than four, uh, right. 
That's right. You got you got the three billion? No, no, no. Nowhere <laughs> close. Oh, Nowhere okay. close. Nowhere close. All right. But you know, look, if if, if um, there's there's I remember um, a quote a reporter asked um, asked uh, oh god who was it um, it was uh, Rockefeller J D Rockefeller one time how much is enough and his response was just a little more oh. right. And so I, I've seen this, and I, you know, I fall into it as much as anyone. But but I but I I'm cautious of that and aware of that, right? That it's easy to play this game, and for some people, it's a game. You know, how many points you can put up on the board, how many millions or tens or hundreds or billions you can put in your bank account or or, or in your your stock stock portfolio or in your company's you know uh, IPO or market cap. And I and I I realized uh, you know a long time ago that that's. Um, that's a game that sometimes can suck the life out of one, right? That you can spend your entire life living in the future, working for that just a little bit more. And um, yeah, it's okay if somebody chooses to do that, but I, I recognize I didn't want to live my life that way, you know? And so um, I'm, I, that this, this put me in an incredibly fortunate position, better financial position than I ever expected to be. You know, certainly it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, going to compete with uh, Bill Gates and, and Melinda on the Gates Foundation, but that's okay. That's that's their role to play. I've got a different role to play. This worked out very well for us, very well for our investors, and I'm in a, you know, great position and, and uh, thrilled that, you know, Zico's still alive and growing and thriving in its environment. I've got a chance to do some fun things like an interview with you oh, yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, figure out what I want to do with the rest yeah. of my life. So, yeah, going on to that topic. Uh, so money is our culture's metric for success. It was rampant in your business school. It was rampant in just in the culture in general. But you said it doesn't guarantee a fulfilling life. Um, how can you win and be, and be a success without looking at money as a metric? You said that you can't lose when you've already won. So what does that mean? Well, to me, that means, you know, there's some statistics that uh, some research that has been done. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's at least in the U.S. And I think it was actually all developing countries. Anything above, I think the number was $70,000 a year in, in income. There's no correlation of additional happiness. None at all. Right. And I think it's it's what's understandable is, look, I'm not talking about people that are, are borderline starvation, that are living at the poverty level. Right. That's a massive issue. And I, and I think we as a country have an obligation to really uh, think about those people and how our, our, our society helps them survive, because that's 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 not what I'm talking about. For most people that are probably listening to this podcast, most people that are professionals and at a point where they can start a business are probably at a point where they can live a pretty comfortable life with many circumstances. Right. Above a certain point, there's there's just. I've found and believe there's to assume that you're going to find additional happiness with that is a mistake and it's a risk and it's not a risk I was willing to take. My personal happiness and satisfaction is way too important to put it at the risk in association to believe that I'm going to have more of it in the future, tomorrow, with more money, with more people, with you know a different life. I need if I can't find fulfillment right here and right now. Shame on me, right? And so that realization has been really important for me. And, and the way I sort of uh, uh, phrase that is, hey, man, I already won, right? And, and my wife and I have had that, that saying for each other for a while. Hey, let's let's recognize it's life is good yeah. and we're happy where we are. That being said, the, the, the irony is to the extent that I've been able to feel that satisfaction, 
it gives me the base from which to go do go climb mountains, right? It's the idea of mountain climbers that build a really strong base camp that allows them to achieve those those highest peaks, right? So what, what I've found is to the extent that I'm able to, you know, enjoy and be content and be present where I am allows me to go out and pursue things and try to make an impact in the world and try to do fun, exciting things, knowing that I already won, that I can't, I can afford to take that risk. Yeah, and so um, one of the most powerful messages in the book, which I actually almost cried when I read it, uh, was a moment you said, or when you came home after hearing the news that the money came in, uh, you came home to your wife, she was making the same meal that she always made, you had it over a hundred times already. Oh, I forgot to say this is a spoiler alert, but uh, yeah, so she made the made over a hundred times already. You're one of your daughters doing homework, the other out at gymnastics. You had to go pick her up later. Um, you said that so many entrepreneurs are not this lucky the day that they cash out. So right. if you're an ambitious entrepreneur and you have the next great idea that can be a huge success, um, what does it mean to win? Like which is a follow-up of the previous question, but what does it mean and how how do you know you've won? Yeah, look, and I think that's an individual decision, right? And I'm, I'm not passing judgment on anybody that chooses to measure it in a different way, right? But I do think that for me, I found, and I'm so thankful at that moment, right, having a simple dinner and I'm helping my wife, you know, make the dinner, it, it made me realize how fortunate I was and to realize, you know, had I made you know sold my business for three billion right but um had been sick and been you know divorced and not seeing my kids that would have been a loss to me right and i and i i could imagine that scenario and thinking i hope i'd be self-aware enough to say oh god i i kind of i didn't win here right mm -hmm. but to have that and have the financial windfall was really just an amazing win but the, the real priority was on, on maintaining that family balance mm -hmm. and i think Look, and, and my hope is to um, to encourage and just just share my perspective and encourage entrepreneurs to not be afraid of valuing those things, right? To recognize and 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 feel um, uh, appropriate in talking about those things as values and to celebrate those things as values because. Look, we all we model what we see, right? So I was modeling the Gordon Geckos of the world and the stock traders of the world, and and I think you know um, some people can 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 model the, the 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 billionaire that then gives it all away, right? I think those are uh, in some ways not realistic models, and and I, I I personally like to like to follow and hope the model for my kids, for example, a balance of those things, right? Working towards you know financial freedom and and, and financial independence is a wonderful thing. But also, you know, keeping your character intact and, and valuing your relationships and, you know, keeping your humanity and, and making a positive impact in the world. Those are values that I hope we can, you know, celebrate, admire, um, encourage in young entrepreneurs. And I think if we do, it has a chance to make a real positive impact on the world. And so um, finally, the night you were acquired, yeah, you celebrated your, with your wife, you toasted your success, you had a moment of relief, you had a, a bottle of wine. But then you had a really important, important conversation about that after you had a conversation about regrets, the yeah. ones you already had and the ones you might have in the future. So as a last question, did or well, not the last question, but there's still a little bit more. Um, did you enjoy the journey? What sacrifices did you make? 
And what can entrepreneurs and business people all over the world today learn from the important conversation you had with uh, Mara? Yeah, so um, I think the simple answer is, yeah, I, I, I really did enjoy the journey. Okay. And, and um, you know, I, 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 I wish in many ways I had been more uh, um, focused, more on enjoyment for others around me as well. I'm sure it was a pain in the ass to work with sometimes when I was pretty stressed out. So to all of you that dealt with me during that time, I'm, I'm sorry. I wish I could have been better at that. <laughs> Um, I certainly was um, a pain in the ass and pretty stressed out with Mora uh, and, and, and my girls a lot of time. I'm sure my family. So again, I you know apologize for that. So I wish I had been in a better place. But you know, I'm, I'm human. I have I have my issues. Those are some of my some of my regrets. But I do think that ultimately um, the, the 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 what I can say with confidence, and, and I know it may be you know hard for some people to believe this, but if I didn't make a dime on this business. I would not regret the 10 years that I spent. I would not regret it because um, I believe I contributed something to the world. I think coconut water is a great thing. It's not solving world peace. It's not going to solve cancer, but it brings some healthy product to the world and, and, and you know serious uh, economic development in countries that need it. Um, I learned so much about myself and and I really learned what, what's important to me in the world. And so I wouldn't trade that for the world. And so I would encourage you know entrepreneurs to if you really believe in something and you believe it's true to who you are, it's sort of your calling, your best and highest use, it's a positive impact you make on the world, then go for it, right? And you may win, you may succeed by conventional, you may win or lose by conventional measures, but you will win if you really are committed to that. And, and I'll finally end with saying, you know, people I think sometimes worry, worry about the future and about strategics and about exits. What I finally say to people is do good work and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. Do the work that needs to happen today in your business. Do the work that needs to happen in your family, in your life, with your employees. Do that good work and the future will take care of yeah. itself. So you, you did touch upon something important. Um, what would the world have been like without Zico? Why did it exist? What was the purpose? Well, look, I'm pragmatic enough yeah. to say that um, not that different, right? Oh, I, okay. I think, you know, in the scheme of things, when you think about a um, a, a universal scale or a world scale and a, you know, a, a, a world of 7 billion people, you know, heading to eight and nine, it, it, did, did coconut water change the world forever? Probably not. But, but what I do think is, is different is a couple things. One, it's a piece of a, of a healthier, um, um, beverage industry, right. And, and, and food industry in general. And so, you know, we, we have a, we have a $2 trillion global food system that really is not doing a great job of delivering, health and wellness and nutrition in a sustainable or ethical way. Every business, every product, every that, that contributes to that makes a positive contribution to the world. Yeah. You know, eight, tr eight, eight trillion, uh, um, I'm sorry, eight billion uh, uh, global industries, nothing to, to, to sneeze at. That's a material uh, impact to our economy. Um, I haven't measured it specifically, but there are no doubt tens of thousands of jobs directly or indirectly that have been created through coconut water. I know for a fact that there's been billions of dollars invested in, in uh, you know, dozens of countries that support uh, uh, coconut water. And that much of that money came from within the countries, uh, uh, local business people that are investing in their own in their own countries. And, and I hope in some small way it helps to contribute to a larger, you know, multi-billion dollar, multi, uh, you know, a deck out of billions of dollars 
of, of impact and, and you know, sort of health and wellness uh, um, um, businesses. So I hope in so, some small way it makes an impact. Yeah. Only time will tell. Let's yeah. uh, come visit me in 10 years and we'll talk oh. about it again. Yeah, and so all the hard work of building the business is within the entrepreneur themselves. And uh, your wife and your family have been very supportive of you along the way. But you said you're also grateful for the people in the previous generations of beverage entrepreneurs who paved the way for you. Yeah. And uh, they did the hard work of breaking the ground in the industry. So I want to know, who would you like to thank? And who are the people, the, the beverage associations, the trade groups uh, that you felt were instrumental to your success? Boy, there's so many. And I, I think I'm probably going to miss out on, yeah. a, on, a, on a few. So I'll, I'll apologize in advance. Yeah. But, you know, some that come to mind are, um, I did make a note on this yeah. too. Um, yeah, a couple I'll mention that might be relevant. Are these ones that might yeah. be relevant for you as well? Yeah. You know, um, one that comes to mind, Seth, Seth Goldman, founder of Honesty, you know, great guy. I think build a purpose-driven business that's become very successful in Honesty. Uh, more recently, um, uh, Jeff Church, uh, the CEO of, of um, Suja Juice, I think is an incredible manager and you know, really, really good person, has built, a, built an amazing business. Um, Deb Evans, I mentioned from Juicero, uh, previous uh, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, there's uh, Darius Peacock and Mike Rapoli from Vitamin Water, Lance Collins from Fuse, um, some of the guys, John Keneally, John Blair from uh, from uh, uh, Muscle Milk, um, you know, the guys from Steve Soda, Steve and Eric, uh, the Business Beverage Association people, Jerry Kamush has been a, always a super resource uh, BevNet, uh, Jeff Kleiman and, and, uh, and, and John uh, from, from BevNet, um, people from Beverage Insight and, and uh, Beverage Industry Magazine. Yeah, there's so many people that um, really have been incredibly supportive to me, um, I think to other entrepreneurs, and I am you know really appreciate everything they've done and so many more that I wish I could mention. Yeah. But, um, um, but you know, I think there's a lot of those people that you may want to get on the show. Yeah, so the mission of the Specialty Sodas podcast is to share stories of other entrepreneurs and to teach others what uh, you wanted to know a long time ago. What does right. entrepreneurship really mean, yeah. uh, particularly in the brev beverage industry? So, yeah, I feel like there's value in learning from the people who've done Absolutely. it before you. So, um, yeah, you mentioned a lot of people who you admired, but is there someone else that you know or admire that you would like to see as a future guest on the show? I mean, all of them that yeah. I mentioned uh, uh, more recently, I think, are interesting. Yeah. I'd add another one. Um, um, uh, let's see. Uh, Paulo Hawking, that's a, a co-founder of uh, Rebel, a company that we're invested in, and, and the CEO, Cheryl, are, are superstars, I think would be interesting. Tyler from Runa, mm. uh, um, I think I think would be would be interesting as, as well. And, um, those, are, those are a couple of the ones. Oh, okay. And so lastly, if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, buy the book, uh, learn about yes. your current ventures at Power Plant. How can they do that? Sure. Um, uh, we're, we're actually shortly going to have a, a website up and running. The fund will close uh, officially within a couple of days. So that will be uh, powerplantvc.com. Uh, um, uh, there's a website that's uh, Rampola Ventures and High Hanging Fruit. You can, you can Google that and learn more. You can reach me just at mark at powerplantvc.com. Um, I'll say in advance, I'm pretty pretty slammed and uh, supporting the business we're invested in, so not the best at getting back at, at email, but uh, I'll do my best to, to respond to people when I can. All right, so uh, once again, this is Mark Rampola. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Power Plant Ventures. 
Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Zico Coconut Water from 2014 to 2013. He's also the author of High Hanging Fruit, Build Something Great Where No One Else Will. Uh, Mark has done something truly remarkable, and he wants everyone to reach higher and live life with purpose, passion, and integrity. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to like, subscribe, or share the video. And don't hesitate to join the discussion in the comments below. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. So thank you, Mark, for being here. You're and welcome, thank Alex. you, everyone, for being part of the Specialty Sodas podcast. Right, thank See you, you next time. Have a good day. All right, thank you.